turn to Acts chapter 19. We'll start reading in verse 21. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that administered unto him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a season. At the same time, there arose no small stir about that way, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have made we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. And when they had heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion, having caught, and having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not, and certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were even come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with the hand and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice, for about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, You men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not that the city of of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and and to do nothing rashly. For you have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies. Let them implead one another. But if you inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. You may be seated. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study in the word this morning? Father, just hours before going to the cross, your son Jesus prayed to you. And we are grateful to know what was on his heart in those final hours of his life here on earth. He said, I have given your word, and your word to the world was offensive, and the world has hated them because 
My followers are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. And Jesus prayed to you, Father, not to take these followers out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, Jesus said. And then he went on to declare a foundational truth upon which we all, as followers of Jesus today, can stand. Jesus said, sanctify them. By your truth. Your word is truth. Father, you've given us truth, and this truth is your word. And Jesus prayed that you, Father, would sanctify all those who call on the name of the Lord by the word of truth. And he said, as you sent Jesus into the world, so too did Jesus send his followers into the world. He sends them with a promise never to leave them nor to forsake them. We read in the the Great Commission, Lo, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. So, Father, we thank you this morning for sending Jesus. We thank you for your word of truth. We thank you for sending your promised Holy Spirit. Father, this morning we ask that you would open our eyes to see how the gospel permeates the culture around us. Help us to witness effectively, winsomely, and courageously. And in the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. How does Christian living make a difference in the culture? How can you, as a follower of Jesus, make a difference where the Lord has planted you? How does a Christian church impact and engage the culture in which she resides? This morning, I believe the text helps us to be able to look at some of these questions. And I think the text will will help us see that Christian living permeates culture and affects change. Christian living permeates culture and affects change. Distinctive Christian living has permeated much of the Mediterranean world by the time we arrive in the latter half of Acts 19, where we're at today. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ has sounded forth the cultures of Syria, Antioch, and Galatia, Macedonia, and Achaia, and now Asia, have been changed. Not everyone received this gospel. It's been apparent as we've studied the missionary journeys of Paul. Not everyone has received this gospel Trials have come. Persecution has been predictable. We've been able to see patterns of that in the text. Gospel fruit has typically been countered with some form of opposition. While Christian living permeates culture and affects change, the change comes not without some level of trouble along the way. The change can come in the form, as we've seen in in, in the scriptures, it can come in the form of of one woman, a Lydia. In Acts 16. It can come in the form of a household. We saw initially it was that Philippian jailer. But then his whole household. It can come in the form of a dozen men. Who are simply receptive to hear the teachings of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of chapter 19. The change may not be all inclusive. But the scriptures testify that Christian living does permeate a culture at some level. 
The text today, I believe, gives us another look at the culture of Ephesus. This time, we're privy to hear a few conversations. Really, as we look at verses 21 through 41, there are a couple conversations we have in the text that drive the force of the text. They're the driving motivators, if you will, of all that we see here in the text. And it's interesting that these words come not from Paul, but from men of the Ephesian culture. Their words are instructive and help us, I believe, see the power and the permeation of the gospel amidst a culture of idolatry. So how might this text move us to permeate the culture around us? Anyone here desire to permeate the culture with the good news of Jesus Christ? I I hope we can all say yes to that. I, I hope we can all say yes to that. Therefore, this text is instructive to every single one of us this morning. The first thing I'd like us to see in verses 21 and 22 is that Christian living is fueled by the Holy Spirit. Really? One of the basic foundational ideas of Christian living, when someone talks about what it is to live as a Christian, Christian living is fueled not in our flesh, it's fueled in the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we see evidence of this here in 21 and 22, but we also see evidence of this all throughout Paul's life in particular. Paul's testimony is characterized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one directing Paul. The apostles operated this way following the reception of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost back in Acts 2. Christian living in the Spirit led to death sentences. Do you remember that? Stephen's Christian living in the Spirit brought on the arrival of a barrage of stones, you might recall, ultimately leading to his death. It's been said that in the 20th century alone, there have been more martyrs for Jesus Christ than in all the other centuries combined. Think about that for just a moment. Men and women of the faith, characterized by distinctive Christian living, operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, are choosing to steward their lives for the one who laid down his life for them. They are aligning themselves with the one who says, follow me. They are faithfully walking worthy of the one who's called them out, who has sanctified them by this word of truth. I don't want to bypass 21 and 22 in the text. Perhaps it would be easy to do so and get to, you know, the main bulk of the passage, 23 through 41, kind of is is a unit right there. I believe verses 21 and 22 show us the pattern of of Paul's thinking. He purposes in the spirit to go to Macedonia, to Achaia, and then to Jerusalem, after which he says, I must see Rome. If you keep reading this book of Acts and you turn the page, maybe maybe it's one or two pages in your Bible, but if you turn, you're going to notice That's exactly where he goes. In fact, beginning of chapter 20, you see that he's going to Macedonia. Verse 1. Verse 2, he is in Greece. Greece is in the region of Achaia. So he's going to Macedonia. He's going to Achaia. And as we keep reading the book of Acts, we see that he's going to arrive in Jerusalem. And he goes into Macedonia. He goes into Achaia. Strengthening, no doubt, the disciples that are there, but also taking up an offering for the brethren in Jerusalem. It's interesting that the same Holy Spirit who directs Paul in his path is the Holy Spirit who testifies, according to Acts 20, 
22, 23, saying that chains and tribulations await him. In every city, the Holy Spirit testifies that chains and tribulations await him. He arrives in Jerusalem and then eventually will make his trip to Rome. The must that we see in verse 21, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. That must is, is really, in many ways, a divine necessity. And we, we, we know that to be true because of the scripture itself. While Paul is in Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus himself says these words to Paul in chapter 23, verse 11. The Lord says to Paul, be of good cheer. Those are interesting words as he's standing trial and in the midst of people who don't like what he's doing. The Lord says, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Paul's vision, we see in the text, is not even ultimately upon Rome. In fact, the Holy Spirit has permeated Paul's thinking to the degree that he's thinking further west, to Spain. Right? Romans 15, verses 24 and 28 talk about his desire to go to Spain. In anticipation of his arrival in Macedonia, Paul, it says in the text in verse 22, he sends out two of his fellow laborers, Timothy and Erastus. He sends them on ahead to begin the work. And the text tells us that Paul then stayed in Asia for a time. Christian living operates in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit living assumes a couple things here. Listening for his voice. I believe the Apostle Paul, it's so instructive for us when we read these missionary journeys as we've been doing this summer. Paul is always listening for the Lord's voice. Listening for his direction. It's almost as though Paul is saying, Lord, what's next? What's next? He's willing to go where the Lord desires for him to go. He's willing to do what the Lord desires for him to do. Paul is listening. And you know, for many of us as we read the text, final farewells might have been appropriate following Acts 19 verse 20. Remember the scene last week where we left it? The word of God prevailed. It was mighty. What a great time to do your final farewells. It's on an upswing. It's on a, it's on a high. That's not what we see, though. Paul doesn't leave at this point. Doesn't come when you might expect it. He leaves as the Holy Spirit directs him. And right now wasn't the time. Perhaps the Lord had something more to show him in his final days in Ephesus. Well, 23 through 34 is the bulk of the passage. And we see here Christian living is faced with confrontation. Christian living is faced with confrontation. Not only is it fueled by the Spirit, it's faced with confrontation. Christian living that permeates culture and affects change is faced with the reality of confrontation. If you've been with us at all throughout the summer in Acts... You've noticed the pattern of confrontation and conflict. Confrontation is close kin, it seems, to the fruits of the gospel. So what do you do with that confrontation? 
How do you handle what seems to be a reality? How do you respond to, to, to Christian living? How do you handle Christian living when there's this confrontation in place? Whether confrontation comes from within Christianity or from outside. Confrontation is hardly ever a pleasant venture. Amen? It's... it's Anyone here, I mean, let's think about it. Is there anyone here who, who looks forward to confronting someone on a particular matter at the office? Have you ever had to confront a colleague? Maybe you're a manager and you have to confront someone on their poor performance. Or maybe you're called in by your higher up saying, hey, so-and-so's not doing their job. I need you to go take care of this situation. You ever had to have a confrontation where you had to deliver the news? Your services are no longer needed here at the company. Christian living doesn't intentionally go out looking for confrontation. But wherever Christian living is permeating a culture and affects change, you can be sure confrontation awaits. Look at what happens here in Ephesus. Right on the heels of hearing that Paul was going to stay in Asia for a time, that's the end of verse 22, we're introduced in verse 23 to a great commotion. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. That involves the people who are walking and following after the Lord Jesus Christ. The way. There was a commotion. Commotion about the way. As we'll come to see, I don't know that the way was necessarily the problem. No doubt it kept some of these folks in Ephesus from doing what they wanted to do. There's confrontation here. And in the allegorical language of Mr. Bunyan and his Pilgrim's Progress, this Demetrius fellow we're introduced to in verse 24 could very well be named Confrontation. Let's just call him Confrontation. I think it fits him. And I believe the text will bear this out. Who is this man, Confrontation? Well, the text says he's a silversmith, right? Verse 24 identifies him. He's a silversmith. He's a tradesman. What's he do for a living? He heads up this guild of smithies. He's primarily responsible for acquiring business for his local silversmiths in Ephesus. He and his fellow craftsmen make silver shrines of Diana. Artemis. Come to see how that all plays out here shortly. The text says they make no small profit. Luke has a way, as he's moved by the Spirit in writing, Luke has a way of inserting these oddities of no small profit instead of, hey, they made a lot of money. No small profit in this particular business. It was very good money to be a silversmith in the middle of the first century if you lived in Ephesus. So what's he up to? Well, I believe the text would, would lend us to, uh, to, to believe that 
he's called a special meeting. A meeting with his own guild of silversmiths. Verse 25, he called them together. But there's also a group of people, the workers of similar occupation, people whose trade was attached to the worship and identity of the temple of Artemis. If there were trade guilds that, that had their income in any way, shape, or form tied to or attached to the prosperity of the temple of the goddess of Diana, I believe these workers were invited to the meeting. Not just the silversmiths. Anyone whose livelihood depended upon the temple of Diana was invited to come. And they all needed to hear what confrontation had to say. Why a special meeting at this time? I believe verses 25 through 27 bears this out. Let's walk through this. I believe this is important. This is instructive. First of all, verse 25, he says, Men, you know we have our prosperity by this trade. And he begins by just kind of dangling that carrot, putting it out there. Your wealth and your prosperity is predicated on this trade. And perhaps he holds up one of those silver shrines in his hand. He probably has a visual as he's speaking. One of these silver shrines. And reminding him of the significance of what they do. You know that our income is attached directly to the quality production of these silver shrines of Diana. In other words, here's who we are, men. He's revealing to them right up front their identity. Look at verse 26. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying they are not gods which are made with hands. Now, confrontation here, he actually gives a wonderful testimony pointing out the change that has been affected by the proclamation of Paul throughout Asia. Confrontation seems well aware of Paul's permeating influence even outside of Ephesus. He's noticed lives are changed as a result of this Paul. This demonstrative disgust is interjected here. This Paul. You can almost hear him saying those words. He's recognizing, notice he doesn't like it, but he's recognizing the fact that Paul in his preaching is persuading and turning away many people. You might say that Paul's preaching is persuading and turning away many potential customers. Do we see this in the text? Confrontation is an intelligent man. He's very smart. He kind of is seeing what's going on here. He sees the effects of Christian living in Ephesus. And while the bottom line may not currently be impacting the silversmith guild, confrontation is addressing what seems to be coming down the pike. 
Thus the need to meet with his fellow craftsmen. So he gives additional details of Paul's work by holding up the silver shrine probably once again. Guys, this Paul is turning people away from buying our quality craftsmanship. He's persuading many people in our city by teaching that gods are not made with human hands. This trade is our prosperity, men. Am I the only one concerned about this? And about that time, you see the tension in the room, in the meeting hall. The tension is palpable. It's growing. Confrontation has the attention of his fellow craftsmen. Look at verse 27. So not only is this trade in ours, of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificent destroyed, whom all Asia in the world worship. Confrontation here, he, he draws his persuasive speech to a crescendo by pointing out the logical conclusions facing them. The first of which he says, hey, our, our trade is in jeopardy, men. We keep on losing customers to the temple of Diana. Job cuts are coming. We lose enough customers, we're all out of a job. Our name will be a disgrace. It'll be a shame to be called a silversmith. Do you want that to happen? And knowing that there are other workers present in the private meeting, not just silversmiths, confrontation now appeals in verse 27 to this particular segment of folks by pointing to a larger conclusion of the matter. And he says, guys, losing customers is going to affect our trade. But, but men, this ultimately is going to impact the temple of the great goddess Diana. She may be despised and the name she has worldwide will be destroyed if something's not done about this. Ephesus is Ephesus because of the temple of Diana. Travelers come from all over the world to see this place and to buy from us. And once more, the shrine gets held up. They come to buy. Guys, it's a simple supply and demand issue here before us. If you care at all about our city, about the worship that attracts worldwide audience, then men, this Paul and those called the way need to be confronted. Confrontation pushes all the right buttons with his listeners, doesn't he? Very compelling. He may not have gone about things in the right manner, but he was persuasive. He did move the men in that meeting to action immediately and with boisterous fanfare. I want you to keep in mind what's happening. Ephesus uses a mob mentality approach to rid herself of Christian living that has effectively permeated the culture. Lives have been, lives have been, have been changed. We've seen this, not just in Ephesus, but all throughout wherever Paul has traveled. We've seen lives changed as the gospel has been put forward into play. Lives have been changed here in Ephesus so much so that they have a special meeting to deal with the implications. Really, we could call it, the meeting is dealing with the implications of Christian living. Seems like the Christian living in Ephesus was noticeably different. It was disturbing. It stood out. 
People's lives, you see, no longer depended upon a shrine of Diana. People's lives no longer relied on a visit to to this perverse and wicked temple of Diana. They had come to know Jesus, the way and the truth and the life. They had experienced this new creation kind of living that characterizes Christianity. They put off the old and they were donning their new attire in Christ. They set fire, remember last week? They set fire to these magic books. They saw a fortune go up in flames. But Christian living was worth it all. The results on the other end were frightening. To a culture known for housing the temple of the great goddess of Diana... One of the seven wonders of the world. If enough people became persuaded and turned away to Paul's way of thinking, the silversmiths are done. The trade guilds as a whole are severely hampered. The temple of Diana is no longer a wonder of the world. The economic stability of Ephesus is in jeopardy. And travel and tourism is shut down. All because Christian living is permeating the culture. Think about the implications here. Look at the effects of confrontation's persuasive speech. Verses 28 and 29. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. That's probably a line you're going to remember before you leave here today. And I think if you were around in first century around in Ephesus at this time, I'm sure that that was a phrase that people remembered long after the riot occurred. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. The text says, so the whole city, remember the whole city wasn't at the meeting, but the immediate response to confrontation's speech The text says the whole city was filled with confusion. The guys leaving the meeting were full of wrath. The city is all of a sudden full of confusion. They rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions. We can presume that that Paul wasn't available to seize, as is often the case, His helpers, those who are ministering with Paul, they oftentimes see things ahead of time and they are quick to make sure Paul is not in the way of harm. Gaius and Aristarchus are seized, grabbed a hold of in some manner, shape, and the frenzied crowd rushes into the mega theater. The mega theater, it was a mega theater. In fact, it seated some 24,000 people this theater did. Loud cries of great as Diana of the Ephesians filled the streets as the whole city makes their way to the theater. Christian living now is faced with confrontation. The theater is packed. The volume is blaring. Emotions are at a feverish pitch. Tongues are loose. The spirit of the judges, I believe, ruled the day in the Ephesian theater. You remember the spirit of the judges? 
Judges 21, 25. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's Gaius and Aristarchus and they're standing prisoner. Observing the crowds around them. The scattering of people. The angry faces. People grasping for something. Paul is ready to go before the crowd. But the disciples, the text says, would not allow him. In fact, the Asiarchs, as they're known, these officials in Asia, they send notice to Paul to stay out of the way as well. It seems that Paul in the text, this is an interesting insert in the text, Paul has some friends in government position. Praise the Lord! And they cared enough about Paul to see that he not get himself involved in the theater. Verse 32 then is Luke's way of describing this riotous activity. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. That's the second time that description is put forth of the assembly. The assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Almost a humorous rendering there in verse 32 to describe, here are all these people. Some of them were saying one thing, some of them were saying another thing. And then there was a group of people who were there, and they they just, there was a crowd. Everybody's going to the theater, and they see everybody going to the theater, and so they go to the theater. And so they're hanging out in the theater, and they they hear these people shout. And some of these people don't even know why. Why are we here? Hey, greatest Diane of the Ephesians. Why are we here? Anybody know why we're here? That's the context. You know, in many ways, it reminds me of what happened Hours before the cross. Do you remember that? Oh, oh, they were shouting different things on that particular day. They weren't shouting great as Diana of the Ephesians. It went something more like this. Crucify him! Crucify him! People just showed up for the spectacle. Chaos. Confusion. We see in the text in verse 33. A man named Alexander is introduced to the reader. Don't know a whole lot about him. There are other Alexanders in the scripture. Alexander was a very common name. We're not for sure if this is Alexander the silversmith uh, or coppersmith. Or if there's another Alexander mentioned in 2 Timothy. Probably not the same Alexander, probably different Alexander. But he was a Jew and he was put forward during this particular time, presumably to speak on behalf of the Jews. Alexander was a Jewish representative, selected, it seems, to give defense on behalf of his people with the intent to set the record straight for the crowd and possibly draw a line of distinction between the Jews and this Paul. Let me make it really clear where we stand with this Paul. Well, we don't truly know exactly what Alexander was going to say because as he stands and he goes, hey, shh, 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 everybody goes, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they just essentially shout him out. Alexander has no voice. The text says that they went on with this one liner. Verse 34, for about two hours. And let's be real clear. 
They weren't just like you and I might pick up a book and read. With one voice cried out for two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. No. They cried out. They screamed. They were at the, yelling at the top of their lungs for two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Can you imagine a theater? And we don't know necessarily if it was packed, but we get the idea there was a large number. The theater held 24,000. Think about a theater filled with a lot of people all chanting that and what it might sound like. That's what was going on. Confusion, chaos, grown adults out of control, raging, spewing hatred toward the Christian living representatives that were before them. Gaius Gaius and Aristarchus, they're standing there in the midst of all this. No doubt they're probably right there on stage. Christian living is faced with confrontation. Lives are on the line. How long is the yelling and screaming going to occur? And what's going to be the fate of these two followers of Jesus? Well, help is on the way, we see in the text. Not by Paul, not by an angel of the Lord. The city clerk shows up. Verses 35 through 41. We see Christian living is found not guilty. Christian living is found not guilty. When the city clerk stands up to speak, the crowd quiets down. And well, they should have. One writer says of the city clerk that he was the most important Ephesian official. He acted as liaison between the civic administration of the Roman provincial administration and whose headquarters, by the way, were also in Ephesus. The provincial administration would hold him, the city clerk, responsible for the riotous assembly and might impose a severe penalty on the city. Perhaps today we would see this city clerk as the governor. He held a position of authority in Ephesus and the people responded appropriately when he took his stand in the theater. The city clerk says four things primarily. First of all, he says and begins, he begins in many ways just like confrontation began his meeting with those disgruntled workers. He says, who doesn't already know that that Ephesus is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana in the image from which Zeus fell? Just that first line kind of tells us a little bit about the city clerk, his understanding about things. He too understands and operates under the assumption that this great temple of the, of the goddess Diana is, is supreme, is paramount. That everyone knows this. This is, this is common knowledge. This is fact. It's undeniable. Is it? You and I read this and we go. The city clerk might have a very important position. He might be a very intelligent man, but he's missing something. Notice the follow-up in verse 36. 
Therefore, since this fact is undeniable, therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. Tone it down. Be careful about what you're doing. Don't do anything you're going to regret. What's he say next? Verse 37, you've brought these men here who are neither robbers nor te- of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. And he's saying, you, you're holding these two men here like they're criminals. They haven't robbed any temples. They haven't blasphemed the great goddess of Diana. As far as I can see, they're not guilty. They don't need to be here. And then in verse 38, notice he calls out this man confrontation. Demetri, he calls him on the carpet in front of the whole group. Demetrius, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. There is a way to do this. If you have a charge to press against another person, the courts are open. Proconsuls are available to hear your case. Demetrius, do you understand? Craftsmen. And then finally, he says in verse 40, we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. It's almost like after talking and dealing with Demetrius and the craftsmen, he then calls to all the other people who have shown up, some of which don't have a clue why they're there. And he says, for all you other folks who showed up, taking part in this foolery, we are in danger of being called in question for such an uproar. We have no good reason for such a disorderly gathering. It's time to go back to your homes. Now all of you get going. Verse 41. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Christian living is given free reign once again. The goodness of God prevails in enemy territory. Are you wondering how, how your life can make a difference where you're at? Do, do you find yourself in the shoes, perhaps, of Gaius and Aristarchus? I was thinking about that as I was reading the text. Alone, surrounded by the swirling opinions of the world, wondering when all of this comes to an end. Christian living is given another day in Ephesus. But what happens when confrontation is too much to bear? What happens when the confrontation leads to further pain, discomfort, even death? Is God still deemed good when Christian living doesn't pan out favorably like you might hope? When the results are Stephen-like, martyrdom, are you still ready to press on and live the Christian life? You see, Christian living permeates culture and affects change. One writer, Bruce Milne, says this of the, of the situation that these folks find themselves in here in, in Acts 19. He says, you know, while not going out of the way to confront the surrounding culture due to different fundamental beliefs like the one 
invisible, transcendent, creator God versus polytheism and the veneration of man-made idols. Christianity, by its very success, finds itself in confrontation with and being opposed by those who make a living from the alternate, alternate worldview. He goes on, he says, to proclaim and encourage allegiance to the one true God is inevitably to discredit and seek the disaffection of all allegiances to the false gods and goddesses. In this sense, Christianity is inevitably subversive in the pantheon of gods and goddesses. And for this reason, Christianity is endlessly at war in this present world. We Christians, he says, need to come to terms with that. It belongs in the given of our faith. The riot at Ephesus, I believe, is a good time to reflect on your identity in Christ. How often do you hear of Christian living faced with confrontation around the world? It's in the news, isn't it? Quite often. How often is Christian living the guilty culprit in the eyes of the world? Prayer in the public sector. The name of God publicly displayed somewhere. Or, worse yet, the name of Jesus put forth somewhere. God is creator. Preaching the word of truth from the pulpit. You know, there are some places where you can be arrested and imprisoned simply for preaching God's word. There are some places that are so hostile to God's word that to say certain things that God says will put you in prison. Christian living doesn't go out of the way looking for uh, or looking to, to pick a fight with the world. But Christian living doesn't have to go out of its way to stand at odds with the world. Christian living, by its very nature, is going to stand out. It's going to be like that trout. You've seen the, uh, the salmon, uh, the, the streams going this way, right? And which way are they going? Boop, boop. You see them jumping back. They keep, they keep jumping back. They don't just oftentimes just go with the stream. They're, they're jumping back. Well, if you're, if you're observing and you're watching and you're seeing the activity, you, you notice these fish going backward. In the same way, I believe, Christian living is very noticeable. Listen, when the culture is content walking in darkness and someone enters walking in the light, do you think darkness is going to notice? It gets exposed. The city clerk didn't see anything wrong with Gaius and Aristarchus, even though they happened to be Christians aligned with Paul. Did you, did you catch that? Notice he says they weren't robbers of temples or blasphemers. Church, this speaks to the manner in which Christian living permeates culture and affects change. It's hard to permeate culture when you live like the world. If you're a thief or if you get caught bad-mouthing the culture, it's a blow to the witness that we're called to. 
think we see this a little bit here in the text. We are to be witnesses to Jesus. And as such, we must be careful to steward our tongues and our hands. We must see that the members of our body now are to be used as instruments of righteousness. Notice also in verse 31 of the text, Paul had some Asian officials deemed friends. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Don't you find it interesting that Paul had friends in authoritative government positions in Ephesus? Friends, despite the plethora of theological differences that no doubt separated the two parties. Friends, despite one party claiming allegiance to the great goddess of Diana and the other claiming allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, this is instructive. They were friends. Do you have any Asia Ark kind of friends? The text bears witness of the friendship that they actually send word to Paul not to enter the theater. They are concerned for Paul's life and they value the friendship that exists. Friendship is not just word speak in the text, but love in action. We see that here. One other word that I would like to put forward about the text. You know, as I was considering this text to my current reality and trying to think through applications of this particular word, I was drawn to the arena of of, of electing government officials. You know, there's an election that's coming up here, I believe, in November. I've seen a bunch of signs. I'm sure you have too. There's a presidential election that's coming up quickly in 2016. How can Christian living permeate culture and affect change? Christians are given the liberty to cast a vote. The point is not to fill local, state, national offices with Christians. Not that I would be against that. The point is this. Christian living can and ought to permeate culture and affect change, not because an elected leader said so, but because the love of Christ compels us to live this way at an individual level. Think about Christian living manifested in the culture. Examples of the Lord Jesus Christ walking the streets, canvassing workplaces, populating households, shining forth as stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Christian living is connected to the one we worship. Do we hold a similar affection for the God of heaven, the creator of the universe? Is our heart's desire to worship God through Jesus Christ? Who by their life witness is crying out, great is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's holding on to, great is Jesus, the one who died for me and rose again. And even yet today, after hearing this word of truth in Acts 19, does your heart resonate with, great is Jesus, the Son of God, the source of my salvation. Or as the psalmist says in chapter 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So how does a Christian make a difference in his surrounding culture? James Boyce 
says, he poses this question, different angle, but poses the same idea. He says, how did Christianity win the day in Ephesus? It was not by appealing to numbers. It was not by a play on the emotions. The Christians did not circulate a petition to see if they could get 51% of the Ephesians to sign it. The Christians did not have a mass rally. They did not send Christians into the amphitheater to do their thing the way Demetrius and his crew had gotten the people together to do his thing. They didn't sing emotional songs. They did exactly what Jesus Christ had done and what he sent them into the world to do. They preached the gospel so that men and women could hear and got converted. And once they were converted, they taught them how to live for Jesus. Christian living that permeates culture and affects change is characterized by teaching and preaching the word of truth and then following hard after Jesus, fueled by the Holy Spirit, faced with confrontation all along the way. And Christian living is always found, always found not guilty, whether by life or by death. Christian living has the power to permeate culture and affect change. Paul himself says in Philippians, for to me, to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. Great is the name of Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Thanks be to you, Father, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of your knowledge in every place. For we are to you the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. Remind us today who we are in Christ We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Father, we ask that you would help us in the time we have here not to lose heart. Remind us that our light affliction here, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we do not look at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, and the things which are are not seen are eternal. Father, this morning we recognize your greatness. Great are you, Lord. There is none like you. You alone are worthy to be praised. And may this people here, called by your name, be found faithful all the way to the end. May your name be exalted and your ways proclaimed. May we be sanctified by your truth and walk in your ways. And may the fragrance of Christ consume us everywhere we go. Great is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.